Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him uh, with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was on, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we know that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And even as in creation speaks to us, we know that your word speaks to us. And so we pray that both would say a resounding truth to us that Jesus is Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you are in your early 20s, you probably would not say it this way. Uh, when you're younger, not everybody feels this way, but quite a few feel when you're, when you're younger. You feel invincible. Like nothing can really stop you. Nothing can really scathe you. Um, I, I recall a, a particular feeling uh, of this. And when I was younger and we got onto a cruise ship, uh, they, they brought us down before we even took off. They brought us down to a particular deck where all the lifeboats were stacked up. And you, you put on your, your, um, you know, your life preserver, uh, you are sitting there all lined up and you're to, told certain instructions that you're going to need to do should the, the ship begin to sink. And I recall thinking at the time, uh, what, what is this? What year is this? I mean, this is not the Titanic. Uh, this is not going down. Uh, this is such a waste. I, I might as well have quoted, uh, from, from Bob from the movie, What About Bob? I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. Uh, I have no worries. I have no fear. I am invincible. So when three or four days into this trip, we get a report that we hear that there is a hurricane that's off to the west there in the Pacific, a couple hundred miles out. And I recall thinking something to the effect of, how, how bad can it be? Uh, you know, and so when, when the ship began to sway, it was kind of fun. I like roller coasters. So for me, it was like, ooh, this is kind of fun. Um, I, I think I may be a little hot on the, on the mic. Um, and so when the ship began to, to sway, it, it was fun. But then at some point, um, I noticed that they said, you can't go up on top deck anymore. And I started to go, oh, that's not good. And then they said, you need to remain in your cabin. And I began to get a little uneasy. But then they slipped packets of Dramamine underneath the cabin doors and it was hard to walk out of bed to get the packets. And that's when I began to get terrified. I was afraid. I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful became, I do not feel good. I do not feel great. I do not feel wonderful. Um, what was I struck with? Fear. 
Fear. I was afraid. Fear. Not of the boat. I wasn't afraid of the boat. I wasn't afraid of the lifeboats. I wasn't afraid of the sea. I wasn't afraid of the wind. I wasn't afraid of any of that. I was afraid of dying. The weather, friends, can have a tremendous power and bring great fear over us. Surrounding this morning's passage, we see amidst a natural and spiritual crisis, there is fear. On both ends here that we're going to see in chapter 4 and then in chapter 5, you will find fear arises. And so just as the sermon title is, we will divide our time in these two portions. The Lord of the natural, and then we'll see the Lord of the spiritual. First, the Lord of the natural. Did you know in Death Valley, um, th- that area actually sits about 282 feet below sea level? Um, as a little side note, there's this great trail. I think it's about 140, 150 miles that goes from the, it's called the lowest to highest. It goes from the lowest spot on the continental U.S. all the way up to the highest spot there. And, and they're only separated by 150, 140 miles. Um, but the lowest spot for us is 282 feet. The Sea of Galilee, on the other hand, sits at 700 feet below sea level. And and it's only about 30 miles to the north that you find Mount Hermon, which is at 9,200 feet. And so the distance between these two is really close to 10,000 feet distance. Um, And so the cold air often rushes off of Mount Hermon down towards the Sea of Galilee. And this is why it's, it's even today common to see storms arise over the sea there. Um, now, now it has been said here that these fishermen, these disciples, they would have been used to this, this sort of bad weather. They would have been used to storms. They would not have been shocked by general bad weather, but they were alarmed at how severe this particular storm was. This storm is bad enough that they are starting to grab the packets of Dramamine and they're starting to hold on for dear life thinking this might be it. You could picture one of the disciples saying to the other, hey, go ready the lifeboats. We're going down. And the other disciple says, we're in the lifeboat. This is it. It's not good. And after them bailing out water, trying to free themselves, you could imagine to them thinking, where is our great leader? What is he doing? Jesus? He's he's asleep. (laughs) He's sleeping in the back of the boat. And this is how it is so often with, with the gospels is that Jesus is sleeping while the disciples are awake. Or you find that Jesus is awake while the disciples are sleeping, while they should be awake. But here they wake him up. They say, hey, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? And he then arises up and he begins to confront the storm. Now, now notice, did you catch as we read this, there was no oomph. It does not appear that there was some sort of struggle going on between Jesus and the storm. There's no yin and yang push and pull. To get things going in a better direction. He just says, stop it. And it stops. It'd be like if one of your kids getting out of line and you need to tell them, hey, knock it off. And then just like that, the storm is gone. Could you imagine? Hey, knock it off. Or in Jesus's words, peace, be still. And then in verse 39, you see, and the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Meaning the wind stopped, but also that the waves calmed. The boat would have then quickly come to a sudden halt. Now, typically, if if the storm ends and the winds just were to be cut off immediately, the, the waves take a while for all of the inertia to work themselves out and for it to cease. But here, that's not what we see. 
we see the wind instantly stops and the waves instantly stop. And the boat would have had complete peace. You probably could have looked into the surface of the sea there and looked past it. It would have been glassy smooth. So friends, this in a thumbnail sketch, this is the scene of Jesus calming the storm. This is it. That's that's the tale of Jesus calming the storm. This is how it happened. What does this passage mean? What does it mean for us right now? I know. Jesus can calm all the storms in your life. Or Jesus will calm all the storms in your life. Believe it. Receive it. I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that that is what we see here. It has not been the pattern of those who love and live for Jesus. It was not the pattern of those of the apostles here who later we know were crucified and some beheaded. I wonder if the point is not so much about us as it is about him. They ask, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? If we were there, I think we would have only had one logical conclusion to come to about this Jesus. Mark has been strategically showing us, here's a God of rest. Here's a God of forgiveness. Here's a God of healing. And yet this morning, as we see, here is a God of raw power. The weather, like a child, does exactly what he commands. The weather obeys him as if he is its father. There was a Danish king of the 11th century, King Canute. He was so well-revered. The people in the court kept speaking so highly of him that he finally had had enough of it. He asked the court. He said to all of them, who do you, who do you think I am? Do you think I'm God? Am I the divine? Said he had had enough. So he walks down to the ocean and he looks at the ocean with all of his court sitting watching him and he says, stop. And when he says stop, the waves keep going. The wind keeps blowing. Nothing changes. What was the point? Only God can control the weather, and he was not God. Meanwhile, Jesus here says, stop, and the weather obeys. Wouldn't you want a God like this? Wouldn't you want a God who is not a weak God? Don't you want a powerful, really powerful God? For those of you here who do not believe in this Jesus, you look at a scene like this and you say, miracles, (laughs) miracles, miracles like this, they're impossible. Well, let me remind you that while, yes, it is true, we do not see these types of miracles this moment, that that does not negate the fact that if God created everything out of nothing, that we then, then stopping a single storm for Jesus at this point, that's small potatoes. It's easy as pie, but further, I would challenge you to consider that if you do not have a God of miracles, if you do not have a God like this of power, then Everything is just physical. It's just protons, neutrons, electrons banging against each other. You need to consider that, yes, if this is the case, all of the earthly storms that we've seen, all the tornadoes, all the tsunamis, all of these things serve no purpose. The tornado, the hurricane, the ice storm, they're random and they're meaningless. Further, Friend, I would challenge you that when you lay your head on the pillow tonight, you need to remember this, that all the storms of your life are meaningless. The things that you faced, the death, the job loss, strained relationships, 
You can tell yourself, oh, these things make me stronger. But friend, that is just a cheap bumper sticker way of you making yourself feel better about the situation. The reality is this, no powerful God, then there's no hope of a meaningful life now, nor a powerful awakening from the dead to come in the future, nor a reason for the storms in your life, nor the storms of the physical weather. And for many, when they come to this stark and cold realization, it leaves them just as these disciples in the boat were at that moment. They're afraid and they're fearful. To which Mark wants to see us, for us to see a solution here to this fear. They are afraid of the storm, and now they seem to have this greater fear, a fear of Jesus. For the storm could overwhelm them and kill them. But this Jesus here is greater and more powerful than all of the elements of the earth. You could say, what could he do to them? You need to understand, friend, that all, not all types of fear are the same, okay? There, there is a fear that leads one to flee, to run from God. But there is another type of fear that leads a person to follow, respect, and revere God. And I believe it is the second type of fear that the the, the apostles and disciples find themselves in once they've seen that Jesus has the power to stop the storm. And so then we have to ask, what is it that will lead us to have a proper fear of Jesus? And what is it that leads us not to fear things like the weather or natural disasters or the possibility of death? Well, to answer that question, back out of this scene here in Mark for a moment and ask, where else have I seen a man on a boat where the man was not rowing, but he's asleep? Where else have I read of a man who, while sleeping on the ship, the men on top deck were fearing for their lives while a storm raged and threatened the lives of everyone on board? Is that not the opening of the book of Jonah? Didn't the book of Jonah contain a miraculous ceasing of the storm too? I think so. I think Jonah tells them straight up, I am the reason for the storm. Throw me overboard, he says. And then the text reads in Jonah, so they picked up Jonah, they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging, and the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Did you catch all the crossovers there? The sea ceased from its raging. The men went from fearing about death to fearing God himself there in Jonah. What's going on? Well, Jonah, he's fighting against the will of God. He knew that for these sailors to, if they wanted to live, that he would have to die. That one would have to die for the many. When I think when we read here in the book of Mark, we see all of these parallels. We see this storm and we see a man who's not fighting against the will of God. But we see this Jesus obeying perfectly God's will. We too are to keep in mind, even as Jesus calms this storm, for these sailors, these disciples to truly live One would have to die. Backing up from Mark 4, we see this God-man who can stop the storms and weather. But this Jesus, friends, he would not stop the storm to come. He was not going to stop the storm of the cross. Where the waves of sin and the waves of death would wash over Jesus. And even Mark records in this gospel, he says, Darkness, great stormy darkness covers the land until the ninth hour where Jesus cried out, This last cry, and the cry was not, peace, be still. Friends, 
When Jesus was tossed overboard, it was a cry of him being thrown into death to save the sailors, to save the disciples, to save us. The one had to die for the many. So that in Jesus' words, he would give the sign of Jonah three days and then raised. Jesus says, one greater than Jonah is here. It's similar to what we read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, where it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. This is what is true about Jesus. If Jesus created the weather, and He's the Father of the weather, He can control it. In heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, and that's what we're going to see in chapter 5, this same Jesus has control and power over the authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of this cross. So I ask you, why should we not be afraid of death or even of the weather. We recognize ultimately that if he, Jesus, went through the cross to be the ultimate fulfillment of Jonah, how will he not also fulfill all his purposes in whatever you are going through? So what do we do? What do you do when you've exhausted all other resources? I think we should do just as these disciples have done here in Mark. We, we should wake up Jesus. We should turn to Jesus. We, we don't always know why we are facing a literal or a figurative storm, but we do know that God is working out his purposes and we can call on him and trust him through it, knowing that he can bring us peace. Well, friends, Jesus' control of the weather brought fear. And as we see that he is Lord of the natural, but now we turn to see he's also Lord of the spiritual. And this too will bring about fear. And so now we turn to our second piece here, the Lord of the spiritual. Look at verses 1 through 15 here in chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately, there he met uh, him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. 
And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there. He's clothed in his right mind. And then catch this, and they were afraid. <laughs> afraid. You see that? So previously, Jesus, he, he's teaching during the day. They get into the boat. They face this amazing storm. They're all fearing for their lives. And then as Jesus has calmed the storm, they were very afraid. They end up on this shore. And then they had hardly gotten one foot out of their boats and they face immediate confrontation. As we read, this man that confronted them had a a demon. And really not just a demon, but many demons. The Roman army word used for legion refers to a number of troops, a legion perhaps being as many as 6,000. We can't say for sure that this man actually had literally 6,000, but I think the point stands that there were many demons that had attached themselves to this man. And and yet he runs to Jesus. I think this is interesting. This man, this demoniac, had, had so many demons in him, but somehow in his strength, whatever he could muster up, he, he runs towards Jesus. I would assume the demons would be pulling him, telling him, run, flee from Jesus, get away from this one, go hide in the tombs. And yet this man runs to Jesus to meet him. And it's here we see a bit of a showdown between Jesus and the demons. There's possibly thousands of them. There's only one Jesus. He's facing them in a Gentile territory. This is not at the temple in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, this unclean man, probably a Gentile, in an unclean Gentile region, and to top it all off, they are surrounded by unclean pigs while up against the unclean tombs. I think this is important for us to get the picture. Jesus The clean one is surrounded here by what is considered by all Old Testament standards to be unclean. Jesus is greatly outnumbered and he's not even on his home turf. If there ever was a picture of darkness surrounding Jesus and the disciples, it would be right here. And here the showdown reveals again to us, Jesus, friends, he never becomes unclean by coming in contact with what is unclean. It's always the reverse. Jesus, the clean one, always makes what is unclean, clean. And just as Jesus speaks and the weather obeys, so here too, Jesus speaks and the demons obey. And notice this, they instantly obey him. This is not like the gal at the grocery store where where her kids are picking up the candy and they're like, you're about to rip open these bags of candy. And the mom's saying, no, put that back, put that back, put that back. And she says, I'm going to count to three. One, two, three. I'm going to count to three. One, two. And I'm thinking, lady, why don't you just tell them you're going to count to six? Why count to three two times? Or tell them I'm going to count to three two times so they can just sit there and gloat over the candy before they're forced to put it back. It's not like that. Here, this one, this Jesus, as he speaks, things immediately obey. And these demons who leave this tortured man, and now they are gone, period. We read that he was in his right mind. You have to imagine the incredible scene here. And then we get this strange part concerning the pigs. Many have speculated that it seems the case that demons desire to inhabit bodies, some sort of physical body, whether animal or human, and yet they need permission to enter these pigs. One thing that seems to be a common thread is that the demons want to destroy whatever it is that they inhabit. So if they inhabit us, they're trying to destroy us because we are created in the image of God. And even as they enter into these pigs, 
They desire to destroy them by, by running them off the cliff into the sea where some 2,000 of them drown. I think this would have been an, a, an incredible spectacle. For us, it seems a little bit removed, like this is odd, this is sort of out there. But considering that one pig might feed a family for, say, a, a week or so, this whole loss by this entire herd going off the cliff is a loss in today's dollar value somewhere around $265,000. Um, and, and if you do the comparisons, because uh, you have to remember that cost of food for them was higher and the cost of living in uh, housing was lower for them. So, so by today's standards, truly the real true cost may have been up above a half a million dollars worth of, of, of livestock lost instantly. And so you could imagine it helps us understand the following events where the herdsmen run down and let everybody know, here's what's happened. <laughs> it, it, this, this, and, and you could picture they're thinking, if this controversial Jesus hangs around and our food supply is completely threatened by him, who, who knows what he's going to do next? Will he bring a tornado and wipe out all the crops too? You could see that for these townspeople, they're, they're kind of up in arms about this whole thing and they're missing the main point. They're missing the point that here, this man was tortured, but has been freed. They they, they would rather remain with their own people in bondage to the demons. But Jesus, on the other hand, says the value of this man being freed from Satan's grip, it's worth every cost. It's worth the cost of the pigs. It's worth the cost of the food supply. And in the end, Jesus will show us it is worth his life to free us was a costly act. And Jesus says yes to every penny. And Jesus says yes to every drop of blood to redeem us out of the darkness and out of the grip of Satan and his minions to bring us into the light. And I wonder if we are in a current part, part of our uh, culture where the demons have a strategy to lull us into thinking that there is no spiritual fight, no darkness to be confronted. <clears throat> I know for some of you, this may raise questions. I'm happy to talk to you after service about these things. But but I would just encourage you teens uh, and, and younger folks to really consider this. That there is a current war that is being waged. And, and I'm not talking about Ukraine. I'm talking about the spiritual war that is going on. There is a darkness and as we've already seen four times here in, in, in the, the Gospel of Mark so far, we have seen darkness come upon the people of God and try to overtake them. We see spiritual darkness that leads people into great torment. And I, and I would just caution you and say, don't think that this darkness is not after you. Just because you may not sense the battle, just because you may not see in yourself uh, or you may not have some sort of outward de- demonic uh, attack going on. Don't think that this darkness is not after you. But also don't think for one minute that Jesus is not more powerful than this darkness. That's what we have to walk away with out of this, this passage. So we see first how this demonic man runs to Jesus. But we also see how Jesus longs to and is powerful enough to bring freedom. This man now sits and his mind is clear and he's feeling the freedom. And these people then are sitting afraid. Tim Keller has pointed out some very interesting narrative connections that bind on one hand, this demonic man and Jesus himself. Um, here he says that uh, th- this man begins in chains. 
He's tortured. He's out of his mind. He is despised by all and he lives among the tombs. But here he is freed from it all and shown great mercy. To which we reply, this is great, all is well. But Jesus, on the other hand, while at this point he's free, by the time you get to the end of Mark, you see that Jesus is the one who's bound in chains. Jesus is the one who is no longer free. He's now the one who is naked and bleeding. He is the one who's tortured and cut. And while on the cross, he seems to be out of his mind. Jesus is the one who became unclean by bearing all the weight of sin on his shoulders. And when Jesus died, where is he placed? Among the tombs. To which we are reminded that when this man, when you, when I, went out of chains, it was only possible by one avenue. The guilty, the condemned, the demonized, the sinners, can only leave their chains because Jesus took on their chains. He voluntarily became sin. The scripture reads, For our sake he made him to become sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friend, if if you've come to realize that you were like this man, unclean, terrorized, filled with your own sin, and you know that you need to run like run to Jesus like this man has, right where you are, this moment, right where you sit, you can repent. This moment, you can believe the truth of the gospel. And if that is you this morning, I would love for nothing else than to talk with you after service. Well, our, our time opened with the disciples afraid. Jesus spoke and instantly calmed the storm. And then the disciples were really afraid. And then we saw that his demons were inhabiting this man and, and they were afraid. But Jesus spoke and instantly the man was freed. And meanwhile, the townspeople came, saw what happened, and they were really afraid. And yet in both scenes, what has Jesus ultimately done? He's brought peace to the situation. One commentator said, Some analogies exist between the stilling of the storm and the exorcism of the demonic man. As the sea is foaming, so does the demonic man. As the storm is stilled, so does the demonic man return to his right mind. And in both instances, Jesus restores peace. The followers of Jesus rest in the presence of the triune God, even amid great turmoil. Who is it? That even the wind and the sea and the demons obey him. Who is this? The answer is right here in our passage. It's found in verses 19 through 20. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in uh, Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The man, see this, the man is told, go and tell how much the Lord has done. But what does the man do? He goes and tells how much Jesus has done. Because, friends, Jesus is Lord, who has imparted mercy to this man. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Unending love and amazing grace. I think this was a song that this man could sing. And when he would sing it, he could really mean it. His chains were gone. And now he's received mercy. 
And it was for him, even as it is, friends, for us today, amazing grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you and we pray for those here um, that there would not be one here who is tortured like this man by the works of Satan. And that we would all be free from the chains of darkness. Lord, we believe and we ask at the same time that you would help our unbelief. For we know that you love to come and to free those who need freedom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.